Listener Production. Created for expectant parents, new mums, new grandparents, or women thinking about becoming pregnant. This series guides you through the highs and lows of pregnancy, giving birth, and the complexities of parenting. Welcome to Birth, Baby and Beyond with midwife Kath Curtin. So today I'm talking with Dr. Stephen Cole, who is a multi-skilled obstetrician by, I was just asking Steve how he actually gets home because he specialises in low to high risk pregnancy care, multiple pregnancies, recurrent miscarriage, maternally assisted caesarean section, which I would love to talk about, Steve, and maternal fetal medicine and fetal surgery. So welcome to uh, my little podcast, Steve. There's a lot of women <laughs> listen to this either when they don't sleep at night and when they're either walking their baby and uh, just through interest about getting pregnant. So it's really great that you've come on today because there will be a lot of interest in uh, what you do, especially with the recurrent mi- miscarriages. Oh, thanks, Kath. Thanks, thanks for the invitation. That's lovely. Fantastic. Okay, so today we're going to talk about um, miscarriage and recurrent miscarriages. And I think it's more, more common than we know. Is it, Steve? So miscarriage is actually very common, Kath, and I think people underappreciate how common miscarriage is. And that's, it's, I think it's because a lot of the time it doesn't get talked about very much. Uh, some people are comfortable talking about the fact they've had miscarriages, but many people don't bring it up as a topic of conversation. We know that about one out of every six pregnancies ends in miscarriage across the whole population. That's one out of every six clinically recognised pregnancy. So that's women who know that they're pregnant who then go on and have a miscarriage. We know from research, though, that there are a lot of other pregnancies that never get to the point where women even know they're pregnant. Their period might be just a day late or just a little bit heavier, but in fact, biochemical testing can prove that they've had a pregnancy. And if you actually count those pregnancies, it's actually about one out of every two pregnancies ends in miscarriage. It's that common. Yeah, and it's pretty hard to get pregnant too, isn't it? Like everything sort of getting together is, <laughs> well, you know what I mean. Some um, people seem to make it look easy. <laughs> I know, I hear what you're saying. And there's different types of miscarriages too, Steve. Would you like to explain the types of miscarriages? Well, look, we really label anything, and this is really from a record-keeping perspective, we label anything that is a pregnancy loss under 20 weeks as a miscarriage. But the vast majority of miscarriages happen much earlier than that. So the vast majority of miscarriages happen before about eight or nine weeks in a pregnancy. So miscarriages that occur later than that, after 10 weeks in particular, and after a baby's heartbeat has been seen, are often caused or or are more likely to be caused by something being wrong that's led to a miscarriage. Whereas miscarriages that happen early are much more commonly due to there being an issue with the baby's genetic information, which is a process of a sperm and an egg getting together. And sometimes either the sperm or the egg can have the wrong amount of genetic information in it. And that most commonly leads to miscarriage. And would that be the situation where it's a recurrent miscarriage? Of all what we call sporadic or or 
sort of random miscarriages, about 90% or more are due to the baby and the uh, pregnancy material having incorrect genetic information. And those are usually uh, fluke events. But because they're so common, one out of every six, it's not uncommon for women to have two or three in a row purely by bad luck. So if there's a one in six chance of having a miscarriage, if you do the math, there's a one in 36 chance of having two miscarriages in a row. And there's about a one in 200 chance almost of having three miscarriages in a row purely by bad luck without there being anything wrong with you at all. So then, though, we start to think about, well, what are the abnormal or pathological causes of miscarriage that we need to be more concerned about? And we normally don't start to think about investigating for recurrent miscarriage until a woman has had a minimum of two and more usually three miscarriages in a row. Mm. Uh, And there are some causes of uh, recurrent miscarriage, um, such as things like autoimmune conditions, uh, conditions where the mother's uterus might have an abnormal shape uh, or not function normally as a consequence of that, uh, cervical incompetence where the cervix is weak and doesn't hold a pregnancy. Those are the sorts of things um, that are potentially set a, a person up for multiple miscarriages. And so they're things that we can identify sometimes and we can potentially treat if we know what we're treating. And it's also the emotional side of one miscarriage, but recurrent miscarriages is... It's just intense, isn't it, for women? Oh, it really is. Uh, you know, it's there are a group of women who are very, very anxious because it's not only the loss that they're grieving there and the recurrent loss, but there's also that sense of fear of the future. Am I ever going to be able to get pregnant and have a successful pregnancy? Am I doomed to have further miscarriages and, and you know, worst case, to not have a child? And as you have a miscarriage that builds on a miscarriage, it builds on a miscarriage, those fears become very, very real. So there's the combination of recurrent loss and grief compounded by increasing fear about the future. And when you have someone who has a recurrent miscarriage, you know, you would give some, you know, psychological care, just talking to them and giving some facts. And Beth and I were just saying how, you know, you have to be a special sort of doctor to be able to carry that um, distress of women and then be able to guide her through what has happened and what the future is. And also the maybe a subsequent pregnancy when it is successful, and I've experienced this with lots of women, the anxiety is out of control, isn't it? It's just so high, which, you know, understandably. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I think that, you know, part of looking after women who have miscarriage, um, but particularly looking after women who have recurrent miscarriage, is really listening and getting an understanding of where their head's at, what their fears are, what their grief is like. You know, we we generalise when we talk about um, loss and grief because people grieve differently and mm-hmm. some people can handle a miscarriage acknowledge it for what it is, move on without too much distress. And other people are are terribly impacted by even a single miscarriage. And that compounding in multiple miscarriages can have a a devastating sort of emotional and psychological impact. And like most people who've experienced grief and stress and trauma, 
you don't necessarily just get over that and move on. So people bring those emotions with them into another pregnancy, even if that pregnancy is going well. And so we really try to be conscious that women who've had recurrent miscarriage often have a whole lot of different anxieties that they don't necessarily express unless you ask them about it. Uh, And unless you're really listening to not just what they say, but the way they say it. And I think a lot of women are, you know, they're so anxious, they actually don't want to bring it up with the doctor or midwife. They've got so much anxiety that this pregnancy is going to stop too, that it nearly becomes so overwhelming they can't express. They just want to get in and out and see if there's a heart rate and if there's not, it's just... No, I think that's right, Kath. I think that a lot of women feel that if they express it, it makes it more real Mm. uh, and harder to cope with. Um, You know, sometimes women, in my experience, also have felt, I think, that they don't want to burden me with their fears, that uh, that's not my role. But that is my role and the role of anyone looking after women in that situation to to be a... um, a support and a guide and, as I said, to listen to what the, those concerns are because if you know what the concerns are, you can often help and make mm-hmm. things that little bit better. And whether that's just the way you phrase your words when you're talking about a certain thing or whether that's offering a referral to a grief counsellor or a psychologist or whether that's talking about other strategies for handling that anxiety, mm-hmm. there are things that we can do if we know that we need to do them. But if those feelings are hidden, which they often are, then it is harder to know exactly how to respond. Because women feel like they've failed if they don't carry a pregnancy. And also when you're saying about, you know, talking to a woman, what I know what women do myself is that when you see a doctor, you actually hold on to every word they say because it may be just for a short consultation and you go back and go over and over that conversation. So as medical people, we have to choose our words correctly or else, you know, people get very, very upset and obviously so they should. But with someone just having one miscarriage, if the woman was older, would you look into it faster or quicker? You know, if it was just say she was a 40-year-old woman and had her first miscarriage. So I wouldn't. I think that one miscarriage... Uh, shouldn't really be a driver for investigation. Remembering also that as women get older, the rate of miscarriage is higher and that that is because of the increased rate of chromosomal abnormality. So it's actually more common for for women who are older to have miscarriages. And, and whilst they are very aware of their age and of, of the timeframes that, that exist around that, they're also more likely just to have a miscarriage for completely uh, normal and explainable reasons. I would offer investigation to a woman who is 40 or thereabouts after two miscarriages, and that really um, reflects those issues around time pressure. Again, we're very unlikely to find an underlying serious contributor to miscarriage uh, after Mm -hmm. only a second miscarriage. It's actually uncommon to find any pathology in that context or underlying reason. But I think just because of that pressure that as much as anything else women are feeling themselves, there's a there's a sense of, of, you know, it's probably worth investigating if a second miscarriage occurs. So how would you treat a recurrent mis- a woman with recurrent miscarriages, Steve? So there's a there's a range of investigation, first of all, to try and understand the cause. Okay. And that's the first step. 
And I have a, a panel of tests which include blood tests but also include ultrasounds of the uterus and um, chromosome analysis for both parents and those sorts of things. Um, and it takes a few weeks to work through that. And we only find an abnormality on those tests in less than half of cases, even when we're investigating women who've had three or four miscarriages. Um, so it's actually good news generally to find nothing. It's mm. often, women are often disappointed. It's actually better to not find that because if you find that, you've got a problem and mm. you're then more at risk of, you know, miscarriages potentially. Sure. If we find nothing, the process of investigation that leads to a finding where there's no abnormality that we can detect, that in itself is therapeutic because that often gives people confidence that they don't have anything underlying intrinsically wrong with them um, that we can find. And so they can then walk away from that with a little bit more confidence when they embark on another pregnancy. So even finding nothing as sometimes as anticlimactic as that is, is actually beneficial and women can derive quite a bit of comfort from finding no underlying pathology. And there's always the helpful people in the community or the street or relatives that say, well, it wasn't meant to be or, you know, it's God playing nature, you know, getting rid of something. That is the most wounding thing to say to a woman. Just, and people still say it. Kath, I've spent my, I spent half my day, I think, uh, deconstructing helpful comments from family and people in the street and at work that have women anxious beyond belief. It's amazing how often people who I'm sure are not trying to be harmful or hurtful just seem to say the wrong thing. I can remember um, a woman coming to me, she was, uh, she was a doctor she was hysterical. I thought something terrible had happened to the baby. And I'm like, are you okay? She said, the butcher just said I was far too small. I said, Jeez. repeat what you just said. The yeah. butcher said. You get so rational in pregnancy yeah. sometimes. And people who say these things, you think they're actually full of fact. And, and a miscarriage is also why people don't, women don't tend to tell family that they're pregnant, which I don't know. I've always thought it's good to tell family. So at least if you do have a miscarriage, you've got the love and support of people around you. Yeah. I, look, I agree with that to a certain extent. I I'm, I think it is a double-edged sword. And I also think there's there's no one thing that's right for everybody. And you might know what your family are like and how they might respond. And you might make a conscious decision not to tell them. And that might be a perfectly sensible decision. <laughs> you know, I, I, I do think that as as a society, we don't do grief well and loss well. And certainly we don't do reproductive loss well at all. And I think that many people don't know what to say to yeah. someone who's lost a baby or had a miscarriage or has yeah. had some other ab abnormal pregnancy outcome. And I think you and I are old enough. You know, we're, we've worked through that time when, you know, women who had stillborn babies or, you know, neon neonatal death, Nothing was done. They were just sent home. It's just, it was, it was just terrible, and and you can't imagine what they went through. Anyway, no, I think no, I think it's a fair point. I think as a profession of you know obstetricians and midwives caring for women with loss, we do it so much better now than we used to. Absolutely. But I do think that in within the community more broadly, we still don't do it well. 
Mm. Um, we still don't know what are the right words to say or how to, you know, look at someone and, and have a sense of how they might be feeling. And women yeah. just want you to recognise it and say, I'm so sorry you lost the baby or if they've if their child has died or whoever, your parent or whatever grief you're going through, it's just to acknowledge it, isn't it, to say it's just terrible what you've been through. And so with the with the treatment, <laughs> and I want to run this past, it's, it's my survey of one, me, <laughs> and again, we're young enough or old enough, Steve. Remember, did your parents' mother ever have Becks? <laughs> my mum used to go through Becks like you would not believe. Bex is basically aspirin, isn't it? Yeah, it's got some other things, but it is. Yeah. It does have aspirin in it, yeah. So I've often wondered, with that generation taking their Bex and having a, you know, a rest, I wonder if they actually nearly treated themselves without knowing. <laughs> well, aspirin is a treatment. Uh, one of the difficulties that we have in recurrent miscarriage is that we don't have good evidence for just about any treatment. The way recurrent miscarriage has been researched uh, up to this point in time still leaves quite a bit to be desired and I think that uh, reflects the fact that it's a hard group of people to do research on, certainly in the setting of recurrent miscarriage because a lot of losses happen early and one of the difficulties that we have in researching recurrent miscarriage is that many miscarriages will occur purely because there was something wrong with the baby, chromosome abnormality or the like and that miscarriage was the inevitable outcome of that chromosomal abnormality. And that gets in the way of understanding if you introduce a treatment, whether that treatment's gonna be effective or not. So for instance, if you give someone aspirin and they still have a miscarriage, that miscarriage may have happened because of a chromosomal abnormality and aspirin's not gonna change that. So the, the medical literature around the treatment of miscarriage is full of holes and full of potential to be taken further. But these are, these are massive projects to, to undertake. Um, so uh, we know that, well, we think we know that aspirin has a role in reducing recurrent miscarriage. We have some specific treatments for some specific conditions, such as autoimmune conditions, blood clotting problems. If we have cervical incompetence, we can talk about putting it in a stitch in the cervix and those sorts of things. But for unexplained recurrent miscarriage, we don't have a whole lot of evidence that any particular treatment is helpful. The sorts of things that have been tried are aspirin, clexane, which is a stronger blood thinning agent than aspirin, progesterone, they would be the three main things. There's a few other things, and there are there are some higher technology, higher expensive, but no more proven therapies uh, such as immune suppression. Uh, you know, with uh, immune suppressive drugs or with mm-hmm. intravenous immunoglobulin or intralipid, these sorts of things that have been tried. But again, they don't really at this point in time have the evidence behind them to say that these are particularly valuable therapies. And that may come with time or the research may show us with time that, in fact, that wasn't really time well spent. But it it doesn't seem that long ago when there was no treatment or no... It's not that long ago also when at the end of pregnancy or during pregnancy you had options of of treatments too, is it? Would it, would it be 20, 30 years? 
Yeah, look, I think it's even less than that. And one of the thing, one of the difficulties now is we have these potential therapies with not outrageously strong evidence behind them. And so we're often doing a risk-benefit analysis where we have therapies that we know do something. Then we say, well, we'll accept a few risks associated with that because we know the outcome is going to be improved. But where we don't have strong evidence that a particular intervention or therapy is definitely going to make things better, we have to be very careful about not encouraging and, and sort of leading women towards therapies that have risk without proven benefit, okay? Aspirin is the most studied drug in pregnancy. We believe it to be incredibly safe. There's very little in the way of downside or risk associated with taking aspirin, and there may be some upside even if we haven't really got clear evidence of that from our research. So I'm quite comfortable with using aspirin as a therapy in that context. But some of the other therapies that are not proven do have some downsides. And so we have to be much more careful about how we uh, offer those therapies. So do you think women, if they've had a a recurrent miscarriage, want to jump to either IVF or another way of, you know, being pregnant or having a a baby? It, It just seems like everyone's in a big hurry these days to actually get things done. I don't know what, if you feel like that. I spend quite a bit of time actually trying to bring people back a little bit from yeah. that point and saying, actually, we just need to go through this process and here are some things that we can do and, and so on. And you're right, I think there, there is a, an enthusiasm to do something and that doing nothing isn't an option for a lot of women, at least before we have a conversation. But sometimes doing nothing is the right thing uh, and allowing time. Particularly when we rec- sorry, just to interrupt you, particularly when we recognise that miscarriage is a very normal phenomenon. It's a part of human reproduction. It is something we have to live with whether we like it or not. What we have to work out is when is that beyond normal acceptable limits or when do we need to be intervening to try and change the narrative a bit? And again, it wasn't that long ago when, you know, you weren't sort of Diagnosed, we didn't have know that a pregnancy was viable until about 10 or 12 weeks, wasn't it? Whereas now the pregnancy tests, uh, I think they can be positive before their periods um, due, is it? Yes, yeah, that's correct, yeah. Goodness, you know, we used to wait for forever. I'm, I'm a little stressed, Kath. You keep trying to paint me out as being really old, but... Um, <laughs> oh, no, I'm saying how young you are. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. And, you know, people talk about miscarriage occurring in the first trimester and waiting till 12 or 13 weeks and, and the like. But that does reflect that for a lot of women going back a few years, the first time they got a scan was at 12 or 13 weeks and it was only Absolutely. then that they realised that they'd had yeah. a miscarriage. But often miscarriages occur well beyond, uh, well before, I should say, uh, 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. So the vast majority of miscarriages, in fact, happen before nine weeks. So if you start off a pregnancy with a roughly 15% chance of having a miscarriage, but you get to nine weeks and you have an ultrasound at nine weeks and see a nine-week-sized baby with a normal heartbeat, your risk of miscarriage is down to 1% or less at that point. So you're already in a good place when you get to nine weeks. When someone has a miscarriage, again, this is sort of, you know, outside chat, you know, women often think that they have to wait or have a period because they have this vision in their head and 
I think not only women, but men have this vision that they have to actually have a period before they try again. And I know a lot of people get pregnant anyway, you know, but what what would you suggest? So I think that's, uh, you can do either. So I think that you don't specifically need to wait until you've had a period. And certainly I would uh, disagree with anyone who says you need to wait three months after a miscarriage before you try again. I think that's a very old-fashioned way of approaching things. And we do know that you're more fertile in the first three to six months after having had a miscarriage. Really? What's that? So it's a good question. We don't know. Uh, It's probably related to something about complete regeneration of the endometrium, the lining of the uterus. Uh, it's it's the basis also for uh, some fertility specialists doing what they call a scrape, where they yeah, yeah. sort of curette the lining of the uterus with a view to try and stimulate fertility. Uh, so uh, that is a that is a an observed fact, although mm-hmm. the reasons I think are still a little bit fuzzy. But certainly that first three to six months is a good time to be trying again if you're in the emotional headspace to try again. Mm. I don't mind talking to women about waiting until they've had a miscarriage, uh, until they've had a period, I should say. I think that I, I often talk about that, but that's got a little bit also to do with just psychology and emotion and I think a little breathing space. And I think also there's a little bit of clarity around dates when you've had a period. So women who are very anxious and front up for a scan and think they might be seven weeks, but they're only six weeks because they're not really sure when they ovulated because they haven't had a cycle, mm. then get very anxious that the baby's not as far along as they thought yeah. and are we heading yeah. down the pathway of yeah. another miscarriage. In terms of pregnancy outcomes, though, risk of miscarriage, risk of other pregnancy complications, you're absolutely right. You do not need to wait for another period mm. before you start trying to conceive. And this generation now, they've got so much information together. Sometimes they, they tell me things. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But they, you know, they're in Facebook groups and, you know, they listen to podcasts like this and and they've got so much information. And it's not good at some ways because, they, you know, like it's, it, as I say to them, if you Google something and then you get an answer, you actually have to understand the answer. Because, you know, you can Google and say this is this, but, you know, and, and do you find that with the, this generation that they're, they're fabulous but they've got so much info to throw at us or to discuss with us? I would actually say that for the most part, not only do people have information but they've generally processed it pretty well. I'm actually often surprised at how well people have taken bits of information that they've collected from Google and other sources and put it all together and put it together well. You know, I'm often impressed by that. The concern always, I think, with doing your own research is how you contextualise it. How is a particular fact relevant to your particular set of circumstances? And that's not always easy to work out without experience. And so that's where, you know, talking to a professional particularly someone who has experience in that area, can help put it in a context and work out how valuable or how relevant that is to you. And I would always encourage people who are doing their own research to keep doing that, but to always run things by your doctor or your midwife or your obstetrician, whoever's providing you with care, 
before you get too locked into a particular mindset based on something that you've read or heard. Steve, is there anything else you would say to women not to do or, you know, don't drink coffee and, you know, all of these things that that women will hold on to and be very, very strict about, you know? So there are some things that you can do to optimise your preparation for pregnancy and and minimise your risk of miscarriage, but ultimately most of the time things will happen regardless of what you do. And I think that's important for two reasons, because I don't want people to have unrealistic expectations that if they exercise and lose 20 kilos, then everything is going to be fine. Equally, I don't want and I don't think uh, women should feel that they have something to feel guilty about if they've had another miscarriage. Most miscarriage is beyond your control. So once we start saying to people, well, if you exercise and if you lose weight and if you drink coffee or don't drink coffee and if you don't do this and do this instead, but the flip side of that is, well, I haven't done everything perfectly, this must be my fault. And I think the worst thing that we can do is burden people with the feelings of guilt and pressure in the setting of miscarriage. There are some general things, so I think that, there is a slightly higher miscarriage rate in women who are obese. There is a slightly higher miscarriage rate in women who have polycystic ovary syndrome. So losing weight and exercising, of course, these things help a little bit, but they help you in life in general and they're not bad Mm. things to do. Mm. There is the evidence around caffeine intake is, I guess it's um, a bit varied. There's certainly some uh, reasonable evidence that drinking excessive coffee and excessive caffeine, and by that I'm talking about four cups a day or more of coffee, that there's an increased rate of miscarriage associated with that. What's more debatable is whether there is an increased rate of miscarriage associated with smaller amounts of caffeine intake. I think that's very, very uncertain evidence. There are some papers Mm -hmm. for and against Excessive alcohol consumption, of course, is, again, in someone who's trying to get pregnant, we we would encourage that not to be the case. Mm. Uh, And we do know that smoking increases the rate of miscarriage. So smoking was certainly something that if you've been dealing with miscarriage that you should be trying to address as part of your preparation for pregnancy. But again, smoking in pregnancy has a range of other negative impacts um, on a baby and Mm. we'd like to encourage women not to smoke in preparation for pregnancy anyway. I, not long ago, maybe two months ago, I spoke to a woman who was smoking and had had a baby. And I think it was the first time I'd spoken to someone who was smoking for years. You know, it seems... Again, when we were young, you know, like Steve, when we were young, it was, goodness grief, people were drinking and smoking, weren't they? You know, um, it was in pregnancy. It was, it was really a shock to see someone smoking in, in the house and also uh, with a new baby. I agree. I think that that's been one of the great uh, public health successes, the way we've been able to reduce smoking, particularly in younger population, although I'm conscious that vaping is working its way back in, but particularly in women who are planning a pregnancy, I think that message has been heard loud and clear. And um, there are still some people who smoke, but who smoke infrequently most of the time. Um, But, you know, it's a a much, much less common thing than it used to be. Just another couple of things. I don't know whether I saw it on Instagram about this maternal assisted C-section. Was that Yes. You know, I do classes um, via a webinar these days because of COVID and 
every single night will ask me about assisted uh, C-section. And I always say, look, I'm pretty sure there's one guy that does it. I'm not going to put his name out there, but I think I know who who it is. Because you you took a photo or there was something, was it on on Instagram? Yeah, so we we planned this for a while and we did the first uh, Caesar here at Freemasons as a maternal assisted Caesar. And um, that made the media. Uh, It was on Channel 7, I think. I can't remember which channel it was. And, yeah, I've put a couple of um, Instagram posts up about it as well. Um, really just trying to sort of put it out there as something for people to think about. Yeah. So just run me through it. So you've got the drape in front of the woman and yeah. so you take that down. She just puts her hands in and... Yeah, so I would I would still deliver the head. And, yeah. Kath, you've seen, you know, a number of seizures over yeah. the years. You know that sometimes getting the head out is not the easiest yeah. thing in the world. But once the head, head and the shoulders are out, the baby's just sort of sitting at the incision... Uh, mum can then reach down and hands under the armpits and grab it around the, the trunk and, and lift it up onto her chest. And we usually do that in the context also of, you know, she has a, a theatre gown on, of course, but we've loosened that so she can slip it down under her gown and have immediate skin-to-skin contact, which is really lovely. So it's all done under sterile conditions. So mum does a surgical scrub beforehand, puts on a theatre gown and gloves and things and then sits there with her hands folded across a sterile drape on her chest. Obviously, you do get exposed to a bit more of the operating experience when you, you know, when you're involved in a maternal assisted seizure. So you can see, and your partner can see a bit more than some people are comfortable to see. But then, yeah, the actual process of delivering the baby is really sweet. I've done a number of them now, and it's, you know, every time you just kind of look back and you go, "Gee, that was really cool." So happy you're doing that, Steve. You know, different times in our career, we do. Um, different things. And, you know, my my sort of career was uh, a lot in the active birth. And, um, you know, I don't think I had, I delivered too many babies on the bed there for a while. It was either in a bath or a shower or on the floor. And, you know, when women have a Caesar, they feel like they've missed out on especially that. And that's so wonderful that women can have that option. It's really nice, Kath. I, I think it's lovely. And I think it, it is very much around choice and active birth, birth in labour ward with an epidural from the minute you walk in the door, elective caesarean section, emergency caesarean section less so, maternal assisted. These are all things about giving people choice as to how they want to experience their birth. And you're right, there are some women who have an elective caesar who are very happy with that and they don't want to have any part in maternal assisted caesar. There are other women who would like to but don't think they or their partner would cope with the fact that they will see more. But there are a lot of people who do feel that they're missing out on participating in their birth when they have a Caesar. For women who fall into that group, I think it is really nice to be able to offer them something that's not necessarily exactly what they would want, but at least it's something and it does make them feel much more a part of their birth than they might otherwise feel. And there's this strange feeling that you have failed if you had a Caesar or it's the easy way out. Either way, it's just that's just ridiculous. And Again, as you say, it is choice and, you know, the more choice we can give to women, it's just, it, it, it helps with their parenting because I always say to them, look, labour is for one day but your parenting is for life. Enabling women to be happy with their birth experience, whatever, does, does help with you being a parent. It really does. Um, because I think those first, especially the first six months at least when you're feeding the baby overnight, you tend to just go through the birth process that happened to you and wonder, could it have been different? Or, 
you know, would it have been better if I, you know, was fitter or... And and women go through those feelings all the time worrying what they've done wrong. You know, I think that's true. I think that, you know, birth is one of those handful of days in your life that stay with you forever for a lot of people. And many women can remember the most trivial details about their birth. And they certainly, again, generalisation, but you know, for the most part, they remember how they felt. They may not remember exactly what happened, but they remember how they felt. And I can remember a woman behind me. This is 28 years ago. Someone said behind me, you're going to be a mother in two minutes. I have no idea who it was. I can still hear her voice. It's just bizarre, isn't it? No, that's exactly right. So, yeah. you know, I think, again, as, a, as an obstetrician, someone who really cares about trying to do a good job and give people the best experience they can, giving them a range of options where it's possible. There are some circumstances, of course, where it's not possible and we have to make the best of those situations. But a maternal assisted Caesar is an attempt to take something that some women see as negative, not all women see as negative, just for the record, but some women see as negative and try and make it a little bit more positive for them so that that's something, that a memory that they will take away and they'll carry with them forever. And I think if we can do that, then we've done a good service. Fantastic. That's It's wonderful, Steve. I'm very proud of you. That's great. Just one little thing on the to discuss. I know you do fetal surgery and I'm absolutely amazed by that and, and I'm sure people listening are amazed. Just what would you be doing? So this is my hobby, I guess. Um this is not something we're doing every day of the week. It's something that we're doing, you know, a, a number of times over the course of a year, maybe a dozen to, you know, to 20 times a year. The main indication for fetal surgery around the world, and certainly the most common thing that we do in Australia, is in the setting of twins that share a placenta, so we call them monochorionic twins, there's an important complication, devastating complication called twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome. Kath, I know you know all about this. So in the days before we had treatment for twin-to-twin transfusion, the chance of having a surviving baby at the end of a twin-to-twin fusion pregnancy was about 10%. We use now, we call it fetal surgery, but really it's maternal surgery to get into the uterus and Twin-to-twin transfusion occurs because there are blood vessels that go between the two babies across the surface of the placenta. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, sometimes more blood moves from one baby to the other baby than is coming back in the opposite direction. So the babies are in a situation where they have an imbalance in the amount of blood in their systems. And so the idea with twin-to-twin is we can stick a telescope into the uterus and identify those vessels that course across the placenta and we coagulate them or seal them over with a laser. And we can reverse completely often, usually, hopefully, completely cure twin-to-twin transfusion with that technique. Oh, that is amazing. It is fantastic. And to see a pregnancy go from imminent risk of losing the babies to cured and have the babies at the end of the pregnancy, it's... So we set that program up in Victoria in 2006 we do it as a collaboration between the three hospitals. So I'm attached to the Royal Women's Hospital. Yeah. Uh, but we, the three big maternity hospitals at the time were the Women's Monash and Mercy. I know that Joan Kerner is now on board as a, as a major tertiary centre. And as a collaborative group, people that were interested in twins and in twin-to-twin transfusion got together and, and we set up this group, which we call the Victorian Fetal Therapy Group. 
and between us we provide that care to the women of Victoria and, and to a lesser extent other states as well. Do women come here for...? There are three main centres in Australia that do it. There's the um, centre in Brisbane, uh, one in Sydney and, and us here in Melbourne, and they do a, a few in Perth, a smaller number in Perth. So we get women from Tasmania and South Australia from time to time. Um, it's obviously primarily Victorian women that use the service, yeah. How long yeah. have you been an obstetrician, Steve? Since 2001. Well, I started midwifery about four decades plus ago, and even in the 70s, Compared to now, it's just like two separate countries, you know, like it's so different. Women coming in, they had to have, they had a cocktail of drugs just to walk in the door, chloral hydrate to relax, and then heroin to, you know, get through the pain. And it was such a different, and it is such a different world. And hearing what you're doing now, you know, that wouldn't even been thought of. Uh, it's so amazing. It's wonderful work you're doing, Steve. Really fantastic. Thanks, Kath. You know, that's the cutting edge stuff, right? That's the the really high tech stuff. But, you know, I think the biggest change in obstetrics over my time is just the way we treat women. Oh, you 100%. know, we've gone from, and I know that there are pockets and, and there are times when people still feel this happens, but we've gone as a general statement, I think reflecting uh, both midwifery and obstetric care from treating women in a very paternalistic way and yeah. a very judgmental way often to being much more uh, inclusive and, and informative and collaborative working with women rather than to them, doing things to yeah. them, uh, to, you know, try and create a much, much more positive and enjoyable framework for having a pregnancy and giving birth. And I, I think that's the most um, I do too. massive transformation that, that I have seen. Steve, that's been really wonderful and thank you so much. You know, thank you so much for sharing your amazing work that you do and, uh, you know, that especially the fetal surgery and I know the, the maternal assisted C-section uh, a lot of women want to know about, but also, you know, you work in helping women who have had um, miscarriages and how important it is to have a sensitive man um, who can um, help women through that really horrific time. No, that's great, Kath. Thanks so much. It's been really enjoyable. This has been Birth, Baby and Beyond with midwife Kath Curtin. Listener.